All right. Well, welcome. We are so glad that you are here this morning. We are continuing our teaching series on the book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read it in just a second. And while you are turning there, um, this week I had one of those kind of interesting across-the-counter-from-somebody conversations, you know, where I think I was at the grocery store picking up flowers and the lady was getting them together. And as she was in putting her employee numbers, she made this off-the-cuff remark that we're all we are is just a bunch of numbers. I, I, I looked at her and I said, wow, what a sad, sad reduction, right? And I'm like, well, actually, first, I said, what, like, what do you mean? She said, well, life is just numbers, like bank accounts and, and, and employee numbers and social security numbers, and it's just, we just seem like we're numbers, numbers in a big machine. And I'm like, wow, that's, I should talk to your manager. Uh, but... Uh, and in fact, I said, wow, that's really sad that you feel like we're reduced to that. And I said, I really believe we're so much more. Amen? Amen. We're so much more than numbers. And of course, the conversation didn't go much further than that. Uh, but our conversation this morning is going to go a lot further because God's word declares that we are so much more than numbers. And uh, as we continue to look at this amazing letter by the Apostle Paul, we'll see again how Jesus utterly transforms our identity. God creates and designs the church and, and then what it looks like to grow up and to mature and as Eugene Peterson says, to practice resurrection. All of this is packed into this amazing letter. And so Ephesians 1 uh, begins with this eruption of praise. Just a remarkable explosion of praise. Step, Paul steps in as our worship leader. And he gets us in on his worshiping prayer. He offers this blessing, this eulogy, and he declares praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And he's chosen us before the foundation of the earth in Christ to be holy and blameless. He's chosen the unholy and the blameworthy to become the holy and the blameless. He is predestined. He's set cosmic boundaries on your life and my life to be adopted, to belong to God's family. And this is all to the praise of his glorious grace. This is what God's up to. You are so much more than a number. So why don't we stand to our feet, read today's text, and we are looking at verses 7 through 10. Let's kick off at verse 3. We are reading part of a 202-word run-on sentence in the Greek language, and This is just an amazing place in God's Word. Read with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has graced us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What an amazing blessing. All of this choosing, destining, adopting, gracing, all of it comes from God. He's the center. He's the one who's doing it. God is doing it. And, and this is not a last-ditch effort of God, by the way, if you read it. This is not like God said, whoa I don't know what we're going to do with this mess. Right? This is in the heart and plan of God from eternity past, and it goes right on into the eternity future. And it's great, and you read this and you think, that is some awesome doctrine that sounds fantastic. But how does that connect to me personally? Right? I mean, where and when and how does all this blessing connect to us, to me? Right? What's the extent of this blessing? I mean, like, how far does it go and, and how does it really speak into who I am? Our text this morning, verses 7 through 10, are going to tell us, they're going to tell us the location, the sphere of the blessings of God and therefore our identity. And they're going to tell us the means of this blessing. How on earth does it come to be into our lives and and the grand scale of this blessing, how far does it go? And so first of all, let's begin by taking a look at how all of this is possible. Where do we find all of these blessings? What's the location of these blessings? And this whole text hangs on two critical words in the Greek language, en Christos, in Christ, in Him. Two words hang everything else up. How is this amazing blessing possible? It is in Christ. Everything we have from God, we have in Christ. This is a very important word to Paul. He mentions this phrase, either in Christ, which is the the proper title of the Messiah. This is not Jesus' last name. So like in school, when they called out Jesus, they didn't say, Christ, where are you? Um, This is Jesus the Messiah, the King. It is a messianic term that means King Jesus. He is King Jesus, the Messiah Jesus. And so Paul either references in Christ or in him or in the Lord Jesus Christ 37 times in the book of Ephesians. I counted 37. There could be arguably a couple more references. 37 times in this short little letter. This is a very important phrase to Paul. And in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, you get 11 times in Christ, in him. The sphere of God's blessings are in Christ. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in him God will unite all things in heaven and on earth. In Christ is the sphere, the location of every blessing God has to give. And if you are reading your Bible from the context of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, you will get the fact that when God rules his people with a king... Right? He, the king, is definitive for how the people go. How the king does defines how the people do. If you have a good king, things are going well. If you have a bad king, uh-oh, right? things are not going so well. And maybe one of the chief moments where you discover that the people are represented by the king is with King David. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, there is a threat in the land. The Philistines, the, these kind of wicked neighbors of Israel, had come in, and they've got a really tall guy named Goliath, who wants to pick a fight. And David goes out and does kind of single-handed combat, right? He flings a stone, knocks the guy down. And 
One guy represents all of Israel, defeats the enemy, and while the victory was David's, the victory was experienced by the entire nation of Israel. One man's victory was everyone's victory. Everybody was represented by the king. They were summed up and defined by the action of the king. And so what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 1 is that God has become king in Jesus. And that he is reigning and he is ruling and he sums up and defines his people. The people of God are in the Messiah, the Son of God, who is their head and represents them. Now, this is abstract, right? This is a little bit hard to understand. So I brought my trusty tool that I stole out of my kid's bedroom this morning. My wife was like, you can't go up there with a pink bucket. That's just lame. Uh, but this is all I got. So go with me. Um, I call this my Jesus bucket. Now, um, imagine with me for a moment that this bucket represents the Messiah. That this is, this is the Christ, the Messiah, and this is representative of who he is. That he's the bucket. And now, imagine for a second that you and I are like these blocks, right? And what happens is that when you and I encounter the good news, the gospel of our salvation, trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He's died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He's buried, raised, according to the scriptures. This is the one God sent. And we say, I believe, I'll follow. God says, you're in Christ. You're in me. You're defined now by me. God puts us in Christ. He locates us relationally and spiritually in King Jesus. And so our life becomes identified because we've been united with Jesus. So we become identified by Jesus. You can't get any more of him. You're in him. Right? He is the defining reality of who you are because you are in the Messiah, Jesus. You're in Christ. You're now summed up, represented, defined, and identified by Christ. Eleven times in 1, 3 through 14, Paul says, in Christ. And now let's change the metaphor a little bit and let's say instead of making the blocks people, let's just say they are the, the things that are true of the Messiah. Because when you're in him, what is true of him becomes definitive for you. And so let's just open your Bibles, look at Ephesians 1, just check out the text with me. What is true of the person in the Messiah? Let's say these are the traits. Beginning with verse 3, we are blessed in Christ. You're blessed in Him. So the blessings of the Holy Spirit, every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ. Verse 4, you're chosen in Christ. God made this sovereign choice to bless the us in Christ folk. And so in Christ, you're chosen. In Christ, verse 5, you are predestined to belong, to be adopted through Christ. He's he's bestowed grace on us. He's graced us with grace, is literally how that that plays out in the sentence. He, verse 6, that was verse 6, verse 7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Through Christ, or that Christ lavished on us, you have lavish riches of grace in Christ. What else do you have? Verse 9, he set forth a plan in Christ so that you're like not an accident. You're, you're caught up in something intentional. And then in verse 10, to unite all things in him. There's this cosmic salvation that's happening. And all of this is true of you because you're in Christ. Are you tracking with me so far? 
cool, right? Like, are you excited about this a little? You should be. Good. All right. Now, 11 times in Christ. 11 times as well, us, we, you. Right? The personal pronouns for us, 11 times. Christ, the title, the personal pronoun for Christ, 11 times. What Paul is doing is he is putting Christ and us together repeatedly because he wants to get it into our heads and our hearts that what defines us is everything that is in Christ, that who you are is in Christ. So there it is, the sphere of the blessing, the location of the blessings is us in Christ, Christ and the church. How remarkable is that? That that God has said, you can't even talk about Jesus without getting the church. You can't even talk about church without Christ, that he puts these things together. They're inseparable. Now, we do this thing where we do separate ourselves out and we begin to define ourselves by something else entirely don't we we take ourselves let's make this a person again uh take ourselves kind of metaphorically out of the christ definition and we begin to toy with the ideas that what we're really defined by is something else altogether we're defined by a job uh we're defined by an education or a lack of education we become defined by income right we become defined by a lack of income We become defined by our spouse or maybe the longing for a spouse or the loss of a spouse. We become defined by our kids, our kids' health, our kids' education, our kids' successes, our kids' failures, our kids' friends. Maybe the absence of kids defines us. We become defined by a hurt, maybe by a failure. We become defined by a success. And we see ourselves primarily in light of all of those things. Become defined by a ministry, by a group of friends, by our talents. Now, let me ask you a question. All the things I just mentioned, are those true things that are true of you? You have a job, maybe, spouse, family, maybe not, education, fear, success, failure, hurt. All of those things are true of us, right? There is a layer of truth to that. There is a layer of definition of your life by those things. And yet, what is most true of you? What is the truth that displaces other truths or puts them in proper perspective and context? What Paul is saying is that the us in Christ is the definitive thing for who you are. Who are we really? What defines me? Who am I in my eyes? Who am I in God's eyes? Who am I in other people's eyes for eternity? Hear me this morning. That God is saying in the story he's telling, in the scriptures, that, that what defines you is nothing that you can come up with on your own. What really ultimately truly defines you is not what you can come up with on your own, and it's not what other people can or will attach to you. But what defines you this morning is that you're in Christ. That's the definition of who you are. Fundamentally, and it displaces or contextualizes every other reality and so it's like we have this baggage of former identity right and it butts up against this and we have to walk by faith constantly realizing that this is the most true thing that that the baggage of whatever i've attached my identity to before whether it was positive or negative isn't definitive 
But this is. And this takes faith. It is a constant thing. And over time we learn it over and over and over. And so you are located in him. You are in Christ. Right? God has plunged you, soaked you into himself. You are in him. Amen? Okay, there is some participation. Thank you. Good. All right. I want to make sure you are awake. Now, you are located in him. Paul calls us saints repeatedly. Like, you think, Paul, are you sure? You sure you want to use that word? Saints, really? He says, yes. You know why? Because you're in Christ. Yeah, but you don't know what I did last week. You don't know what I said about. You don't know what I thought. You're in Christ. God is doing a work of refining you. Now, um, one of the things I was thinking about this week was my, like my daughter in Disneyland is always fun. And um, just imagine for a second that my daughter is in Disneyland whining. Right? I, it's hard to imagine with a four-year-old, right? So let's say she's whining. She's wonderful. But let, so let's say she's just whining about something. In that moment, what do you think I'm going to do as a dad? You get down on her level and say, Penny, look around you. You are holding popcorn. You just got off Dumbo, and there's a castle right there. <laughs> Quit whining, right? Like, there's no whining in Disneyland. You are in Disneyland. Like, get over it. Whatever it is can't be that bad. And so, Paul says, look around you this morning. Look around you. You're clothed in Christ. You're in Christ. You have joy. There's no whining in Christ. Like, knock it off. Who are you? Where are you? You're defined by Jesus. The crucified and resurrected Lord, Kyrios, of the world. That is good news. And so Paul says, remember it. How many of you, when you came in this morning, forgot you were wearing pants? And you started acting sheepishly like, gosh, I can't believe I did that. I better go get some pants. Oh, I'm wearing pants. Like none of you did that, right? Like how absurd would it be to forget you were wearing pants? Unless you're dreaming. But... You didn't forget you were wearing pants, did you? Right? You acted like you were wearing pants because you knew it was true. How absurd. Obviously, I'm out in public. Of course I'm wearing pants. It should be just as obvious when you wake up, when we breathe, when we eat, when we drink, when we get into the car, when we see the person across the counter who says we're just numbers, when we stand, when we sit, when we walk, when we speak, that we are in Christ, that we are wearing Christ. We have been plunged and soaked in who God is through the presence and gift of the Holy Spirit. God says you're in Christ. Don't forget it. You're wearing Him. We're in Him. We're alive in Him in a new and vital way. Everything you have from God, you have in Christ. That's the gospel. And it's not because you're awesome and God owes you. And it's not because you're awful and God pities you. It's because you're in Christ and you've embraced the gospel. That's why. And so, thank you. So, right, we make our identity around that. I'm a saint. 
I'm an in Christ one. I am sealed by the Spirit. I'm reconciled to God and justified, set right before Him. No more alienation. I have a reality view of myself, which is that I'm broken. Yes, there's mess, and I am restored and valuable. I love what Tim Keller says about the gospel, that the gospel declares to us that we're more wicked than we ever dared imagine and more love, valued, and accepted than we ever dared hope. And the gospel gives us confidence to live in that tension and to say, there's mess, and God's redeeming it. He's valued it. It gives us confidence because the, the victory of God over the powers of sin, death, and devil. There's no shame or pride, just gratitude for cleansing and peace. Paul says that you were in your transgressions and sins. He says this in chapter 2, verse 1. But in 4 through 10, listen to this. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus Every blessing we have is in Christ. That's the location of the blessings. Got it? This is amazing stuff. Now, the other thing that you get, by the way, is when you get put in Christ, you get everybody else that's in the bucket. Right? So we spent all fall talking about community. Right? And this is the amazing thing about, about Jesus. Like, you get lumped in with a bunch of people you'd never choose. Right? Like, think... Like, But you know who did choose him? God. Before the foundation of the earth. That's amazing. You know, I'm here because God said, these are the people that I chose. Not because this is the coolest place to be. It's because these are the people I've chosen. So sink yourself into the people of God to love and to serve and to build up and to be enriched by those in Christ. That's part of the blessings. And we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Now, you think, how on earth is this true? How could I be in here? How did I get there? How is this true? Now, Paul tells us the means of these blessings. The means of the blessings. Something irreversible has taken place already. In him, the text says, we have. In him, we have something Amazing. This is what it says. In him we have redemption through him, or I'm sorry, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So our union with Jesus, our being put in Christ, is because of redemption through his blood. Now, if you were a first century Jew or Gentile, it wouldn't matter. The background noise to the word redemption would obviously be the slave market, right? Because in that day you had slaves and, and if you wanted to free one, you paid the price and you purchased redemption for them and you set them free. This was part of the social practice of the first century world into which Paul was writing. Now, if you, that's background noise. At the foreground, at the front, Paul's a Jew. He's writing as an Israelite. He's telling the story of Jesus the King, the fulfillment of Israel's story. And so he obviously has us going back to the first time this word's really used. Go back to Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. 
God says to Moses, Therefore say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And again, in Deuteronomy 15.15, part of their worship is to remember what God's done. And he says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you. Again, the imagery of slavery, but particularly out of the story God's telling about his people and what he's done in the Exodus. So redemption in the Bible is always about setting captives free. The imagery of redemption in the Bible is about setting captives free from uh, forces and powers they were never intended to be subject to. Free from oppression, free from evil, free from decay, free to know the living God and to be in right relationship with him, self, and others. And so in Christ we have redemption. In Christ we have redemption. That is, God has brought about a new exodus. The true exodus, the ultimate exodus, which is to bring the world out of slavery to sin and death and the devil and the flesh and everything that pits itself against the peace and design of God. And so Jesus came announcing the kingdom of heaven had come, which is about God bringing this new fresh work of liberation of the people of God from bondage right, to sin and death and the real spiritual forces of evil. And so like the original exodus... Redemption was holistic. It involved release politically, economically, socially, and spiritually. Worked in every direction. And the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaims is whole person, whole world. That economically, politically, uh, socially, spiritually, Jesus is releasing captives. To be the new, renewed people of God made in his image. And this is remarkable stuff, you guys. This is amazing. And so in other words, when God redeems someone or something, he is in the business of redeeming the whole person, not just a part of you, not just a slice of you, everything. This is a biblical imagery for redemption. Now, redemption also came at a cost, especially in the original Exodus. Right? When God redeemed his people, he did it on the night of the first Passover. This is where God instructed the people to trust him. He said, I'm sending my destroying angel. This angel of death is going to go through the land. He's going to kill the firstborn of everything. Like ants, cows, people, firstborns being judged for the wickedness in this land. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take an unblemished lamb. I want you to kill it. And I want you to put its blood on the doorposts of your home. And as you do, how Passover the place where that blood is shed and spread on the doorposts of your home. And the people will be protected from the judgment of God. And so what Jesus is doing by being the one in whom we have redemption is he's saying, look, I'm the one who's paid the ultimate price. Because it's redemption in his blood. He purchases the forgiveness of trespasses or sins. And this is the real deliverance from the real slave master. This is why John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, That guy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist gets it. Jesus is bringing about a new exodus. And he's paying the cost of redemption with his blood. Colossians 1.20, we see that all things in heaven and on earth, again, will 
Uh, we'll come back to that theme in a moment. All things in heaven and earth are reconciled by Jesus' blood. Do you, do you sense that the world's held captive? Do you sense that in the places you work and go to school and uh, in your home and yourself? That there's like captivity. We, we need redemption from I know I, I know you do because I know I do, right? Like why, why else? Do I lose my temper and get snappy with the people I love? Why, why, why do I care sometimes honestly more about what you think than what God thinks? I had to confess that this week in my car and I was like, God, I, this, I'm sorry. Right? And I know you had stuff you had to confess this week, right? Why is it easier to correct somebody else than to receive correction? Why is my first impulse always to manage my reputation rather than be transparent? The list goes on and on about how captivity to sin and the flesh and the devil works itself out from like subtle to gnarly extreme. And you've got plenty of examples I don't have to convince you, do I? Right. And the thing is, God says you're personally responsible for some of this. Not all of it, but your stuff you're responsible for. Sin, offense, we reject God's good and we say, I'm going to set out on my own and we end up exiled and alienated from the peace of God. Go back to verse 1 of this whole letter. Grace and peace. Grace leads to peace. Over and over. And so redemption isn't an added bonus. Right? It's not like God says, hey, you need a little bit of redemption to improve the little bit of yourself that's messed up. Like, hey, here's my great self-improvement plan. You need some redemption. And that'll just take you to the next spiritual plane. Now, God says redemption is a prerequisite for life. If you're going to live, you need to be redeemed. It's foundational to being free from the power and oppression of sin. It's the decisive act that we all need to get out from under slavery to sin and indictment. And this is amazing because God offers it and he pays and absorbs the cost. That's the emphasis on this. Redemption through his blood. Who paid? Jesus. And the cost was high. That's, that's, that's the key here. Some, some of you may have encountered theologies that say Jesus had to pay a ransom to Satan to get us free. Don't. That's nonsense. God owes nobody nothing. Right? It's actually the opposite. Right? That's not what this point, the point of redemption is about. It's not a ransom to Satan or anybody else. It's God's satisfaction of his own justice. And so here we are with the high price of redemption that Jesus offers by his own blood. It's personal. He's personally invested in you and your redemption. That's the point. And so he pays his high price. He's the substitute in our place. And so instead of dying in our sin, we end up believing him and living in his righteousness. That's the gospel. And so the thing then that this redemption through his blood achieves is the forgiveness of sins. Right? That everything we've done to rebel and go against God, God says, I'm wiping it clean. You are out from underneath the indictment of sin. Listen to Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 2. You were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made us alive together in him. 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You think you're going to go see a spectacle today? That is nothing compared to what Jesus has done on the cross. Millions of dollars for what? Nothing. Blood shed on a cross, everything. Got it? This is so key. Amen? Amen. All right. Why on earth does God do this? What's he thinking? Why does he do this? The riches of his grace. This is it. He's motivated by love. He's motivated by this goodness of who he is. says this in the text. Then redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Grace is this river of God's goodness. The definition I often come back to for grace is this. It is the unearned favor and blessing freely given by an unobligated giver. God has is under no obligation to pour out these blessings. He gives them freely, and we haven't done anything to earn them. It is grace. We're going to come back to that over and over in this book. Christ is at once the evidence of God's grace and the one in whom we experience it. See, all of this is because God is just filthy rich in grace. He's utterly wealthy the riches of his grace. He just pours it out. He lavishes. Paul, one of Paul's favorite words is lavish. There's like no better word to describe God's outpouring of grace than lavish. It is lavish. It is just, it is big. He holds nothing back. He spares no expense and he, he gives freely. The riches of his grace, Paul says, are in accordance with his wisdom and insight. Really? This was the wise choice? It seems like a foolish investment to me. Right? First Corinthians 1, Paul says that the foolish, this is foolishness, like foolishness to Gentiles, and yet it's the wisdom of God, this, this gospel. And we look at this and we think, man, poor investment to lavish expensive grace on us, to lavish expensive, I mean, at the price of his son's life, expensive grace on that brother that just keeps wounding, on that, that sister that just keeps spreading lies on that that just that mean person that we always avoid lavish grace on that neighbor whose lifestyle choice just certainly does not match up to what i think is okay right and well even what god says is okay and yet lavish grace even on that churchgoer who sneers at grace itself because they've got such a clean life what is god thinking all his wisdom, all his insight. It's a word pair, the two go together. In other words, this is a very sound decision within the economy of who God is. He's into this. It's the opposite of foolishness. And his amazing wisdom, God utterly transforms us with grace. And that's the point. The, the unholy and the blameworthy become the holiness, the holy and the bl- blameless. The sinner in Second Corinthians Five becomes the righteousness of God. How does this happen? Grace transforms us and messes with us. This radical acceptance melts our hearts and we end up 
desiring what God desires and doing what God does. Don't you want to get in on that? Doesn't this grace sound good? Rejoice in it, wear it, revel in it, dance in it, boast in it, be generous with giving it. That's what we're to do because the well's deep. All the riches of God's grace lavished on us. Well, that's the sphere, location of our blessings. That's the means of our blessings. But how far does it really go? I mean, where has God really taken all of this? What's the extent of these blessings? I grew up in a theology, a church that had a theology of essentially God's main purpose is to get you in the door of heaven. He's going to burn everything else behind you, so just get in the door. And be good until you get, you know, just be good and don't do anything bad. That was the adventurous Christianity that I was sold. I loved Jesus because he seemed, so it stuck. So, but this is bad theology. This is not the imagery the Bible has to offer. This isn't the purpose of God just to get you into disembodied bliss on a cloud someday. That's not what the Bible's teaching. What the Bible's teaching is, in fact, what Romans 8 says, the whole creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth, right, waiting its redemption, the same word that is used for us. The creation is going to get set free. God's going to recycle this stuff. He's not going to just toss it. He's going to refashion and renew the earth, and the heavenly city is going to come down. God will make his dwelling among us. That's the picture of the end of Revelation. And so what we get is everything gets redeemed. What is the purpose of God? Let's take a look at verse 9. He lavished all this wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God is in the business of making everything right. He's setting everything to rights. That's what God's doing here. Everything. So Paul uses this word here. This mystery is made known. Now in most advertising, you get this sales pitch that goes like this. You're kind of pathetic, and without this product, you're unfulfilled, fairly miserable, not very good looking, and if you buy this, you'll be happy, you'll look better, and your life will be really full. And then you get the thing, and then you open up the instructions, and it's missing one or two items that you can buy for extra to really take you to that next level of full blessing, right? Like, oh, there's all of these things that I don't have yet, right? And it just strings you along, right? Like there's just there's this level of fulfillment that you haven't reached yet until you get the next so-and-so, whatever it is. Whether you're a tech geek or you're into fashion or you're things like old cars, there's always a next thing, right? Whatever it is, because it's stuff, and it works like that. And in, in the first century world that Paul was writing, there were these mystery cults, too. They would offer kind of the secret knowledge. And if you, if you did the right religious hoops, you would get the next batch of knowledge, right? You'd get, you'd get a little bit further spiritually. And what, what Paul's doing here is he's saying, this is a mystery made known. So he's taking all that advertising nonsense, he's taking all that mystery cult nonsense, and he's, he's tossing it aside, and he says, what God has done is he's made an open secret, right? It's like, shh, don't tell, everybody's in on it. Right? Like, here's the thing that God did. It was a secret in the sense that nobody could have figured it out on their own. Like, we couldn't have dreamt this up. But now it's made known, it's out in the public, it's for everybody to see, and there's no hidden knowledge, it's just, Jesus is king, there it is, Boom. Mystery made known. Get in on this. He says, so 
I want everybody to know this secret that's really actually right out in the open. And then he says, I've made it known for this purpose that at the fullness of time when the Messiah came, I'm I'm doing this work of uniting all things in heaven and on earth in King Jesus. Now here's the rub. There are all kinds of dissonance in the cosmos, right? There's, there's discordant notes in the heavenly realms. You've got, you've got demons doing stuff. You've got spiritual oppression and evil. You've got dissonant and discordant notes in the structures of the market and of the government and of church and of relationships and of our own souls. And there is just dissonance. Things are not in perfect united harmony yet, are they? So this is a not yet kind of promise, right? There's stuff coming that's going to bring all of this into harmony. And God is saying that there's a goal to all history. It is going somewhere. Every kind of history, natural, social, political, economic, individual, everything is going to be brought together in perfect unity under the will and purpose of King Jesus. He's doing that work. All things will achieve their purpose. They'll be in line and in cohesion with Jesus. Everything. Really? believe that? There's going to be a day when everything comes gathered together under the head of Christ. There's, like, there's not going to be a tear. Nobody's going to be hungry. The Lord's going to heal the wounds of the afflicted. No more violence. He's going to have reconciled everything through his blood. As Colossians 1.20 says. I love what the great Irish theologian Bono says. <clears throat> um, and the nine o'clock service wasn't so sure. They were like, "Don't you know that? Should we, should, should we know him?" All right. Um, he says this in one of one of U2's songs, "Grace, Grace." She takes the blame, she covers the shame, removes the stain. What once was hurt, what once was friction, what left a mark, no longer stings, because grace makes beauty. Out of ugly things. This is a gospel word. This is what Jesus is up to. The plan. His, his purpose. Is to do that. To take the mess. And bring about his perfect beauty. He's at work. And he's doing it. He asks you to partner with him in that work. And one day. He will bring it to its fulfillment. And its close. Now. If God's up to that. Do you think he can handle your mortgage payment? Do do you think he can handle that messed up relationship that just constantly provides tension? Do you think he can handle that worry in the back of your mind? Whatever it is that you came in here with this morning. This is the God that unites everything, gathers it together under the head, Jesus. Because he's king, he's reigning. Trust him today. And partner with him. Work energetically with all the passions and gifts God's given you in everything, right? In every area of the planet to bring about what Jesus prayed to the Father. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. That's what Jesus is bringing out. So we partner with him, we pray to that end, and we believe to that end because Jesus is doing it. Now, we, we want to know Jesus the King, don't we? This is all this is in Christ. The blessings are in Christ. So, do you know Jesus today? 
Do you know him? If you don't know him, if you, if, if you haven't bent the knee to King Jesus to say, he's got my allegiance, today that can happen. And you can say yes to his redemption. You can say, I will follow this king and let him rule in my life. I need his grace. And you know what his grace does? It gives you the ability to say, I'm a, I'm a mess on my own. Because now you're not afraid of retribution. You're just motivated by embrace. Because that's what's waiting for you when we bow the knee to Jesus. Right? We're drawn into his love. And you can do that right from your seat. You can tell God this. And tell him you believe and offer yourself to service to the king. And in a moment, you know, when we, after we take communion, I'm going to invite elders and pastors and key church leaders to just be available to pray. Nothing threatening. We just would love to, we're excited about this. Like, this gets us really motivated, and we just would love to pray with you and just put an amen onto what you're saying before God. And so, uh, in a moment, that can, that can happen. And if you know Jesus, if you're in him, if you're like, this defines me, I am in Christ, then you know what? Everything in your life is to come into cohesion, coherence with who he is. You're defined by him. Let's live like it. Let's remember we're wearing pants, right? Let's remember where we are. Let's live like that in our relationships, in the things that we give voice to, in the things that we invest our energy into. Let's live like that. See, this morning, it's a simple call. Call to Jesus, embrace him. He's the king. Embrace your forgiveness. Be released, be set free this morning from the indictments of sin and death and devil and just live freed because he's given you grace. It's a call to obedience. Follow in the footsteps of the king. Right? Live aware of your location. And it's a call to be redemptive. Do, do what God does. Be in the business of helping people know his redemptive love. Right? This is awesome stuff. We need to pray. Um, I want to invite you to come and receive communion while the band comes up and leads us. And uh, really, this is the place where we celebrate all of this redemption. This is the place where we say, His blood shed on the cross has purchased my redemption. I'm free. And so we take this cup symbolically saying, I'm nourished by this freedom, I just redemption. We take the bread and it's a way of saying again, he offered his body so he could incorporate me and unite me into his body. So we make up his body in his world to do as he does and love what he does. And we just again celebrate the goodness of our redemption in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for drawing us to yourself with your crazy love and giving us grace lavishly, making us in Christ ones. Help us to remember and live that out. So we remember your body and blood this morning. God, nourish us and send us out in the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.